Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voices of America. I'm James Barty Washington. Today is Thursday, August 25th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. South African workers march as inflation hits 13-year high. The main causes, obviously, have been the steep increase in fuel prices and the continuing rise in food prices as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Renewed fighting scuttles five-month-old Ethiopia ceasefire. Malawi gives refugees 90 days to relocate to a refugee camp. Ghana says 23,495 Ghanaians tested positive for HIV between January and June this year. Vote counting is underway in Angola following Wednesday's parliamentary and presidential election. The law here says that the final results need to be released up to 15 days. It can be sooner, but it cannot be later than that. And Nigeria integrates rotavirus vaccine into national vaccination programs. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. South African workers are holding protests nationwide against the rising cost of living. The protests are taking place as South Africa hits its highest rate of inflation since 2009. Vicky Stock reports from Cape Town, South Africa. Thousands of workers took to the streets in all nine provinces to demand, among other things, a basic income grant, a better minimum wage and a cap on fuel prices and interest rates. They also want the ongoing problems with the state-owned supplier of electricity, ESCOM, to be resolved so that businesses stop losing work due to power cuts. Azar Jamin, the chief economist at consultancy firm Econometrics, says the July inflation rate of 7.8% was expected. The main causes, obviously, have been the steep increase in fuel prices at the beginning of July and the a continuing rise in food prices as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the halting of food exports from the latter uh, until recently, which pushed up food commodity prices globally. Jamin says the $88 basic income grant demanded by the Congress of South African Trade Unions, COSATU, and the South African Federation of Trade Unions, SAFTU, is unrealistic. It's a path to total catastrophe in a very short space of time if we were to succumb to the kind of basic income grant that they're looking for, which would cost 400 billion rand extra per year. Um, let us rather just live with the kind of social grants that we already have, which are more uh, magnanimous and widespread than, uh, than is the case with most other countries. Economist Lebo Hang Peko, a senior research fellow at the Trade Collective Research Group, disagrees. My question is, can we afford not to? I think the notion of a basic income which is able to deal with things like hunger at household level and at childhood level, which has other uh, impacts like stunting, like cognitive functioning at a very crucial developmental age, is quite important. But can the protests force the government's hand? I do think that what these sorts of protests do is they are a challenge to the state. They are a reminder, a a postcard from the very poor and from the very angry of what is happening on the ground. And what you do when you receive something in the mail, you do well to read it. Jamin, meanwhile, is optimistic prices will improve soon. Uh, Given the fact that fuel prices came down sharply in August, and are likely to fall further in 
September. And given that uh, Ukraine has now started shipping food back abroad, uh, exporting to Middle East and other countries, uh, food prices could also start coming down. Ironically, Kusato, which initially called for the protests, is an alliance partner with the ruling African National Congress Party, which has been in power since 1994. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Vote counting is underway in Angola following Wednesday's parliamentary and presidential election. The two leading parties are the ruling Popular Front for the Liberation of Angola, MPLA, led by President Joao Lorenzo, and the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, UNITA, led by Adalberto Costa Jr. Myra Fernandez of U.S. Portuguese Service is in Luanda covering the vote. She tells me voting went well on Wednesday despite minor glitches. A lot of people went to the polling stations very early. The polling stations opened at 7 a.m., but uh, we talked with people that were queuing since 5 a.m. For several reasons. They had to report back to work. They didn't want to be on a long line for too long. Some had to wait a little longer, so there was some insatisfaction towards that. But um, it went smoothly at the polling stations where we went, the people that we talked with. They said that everything went well. How would you describe the enthusiasm among the voters you talked to and what are some of the things that motivated them? You know, uh, one interesting thing about everyone that we talked with, it didn't really matter the age group, was uh, the sense of um, being able to contribute for the country, for the country uh, development, for the change, for the good things that they want to see happening in the country. Myra, were there any major complaints from voters? For example, did the voters find their voting places and on time? Some people uh, had uh, the surprise of uh, being dislocated. How can I put this? They thought they would vote in a specific location, and when they got there, they were told that, no, you don't belong here, you have to go somewhere else. But there are not major incidents. We also had complaints from civil society movements saying that uh, some of their people that were doing the inquiries outside the polling stations were detained. Some journalists actually asked the spokesperson for the Electoral National Commission, and he said that he had no knowledge of that. So, Myra, when does the Election Commission hope to release some preliminary results? The law here says that the final results need to be released up to 15 days. It can be sooner, but it cannot be later than that. The spokesperson was explaining that because the system here, they have to get all the reports from all the 18 provinces plus the countries where Angolans could vote this year, um, don't really have a date to release any kind of uh, preliminary results. The normal thing that usually happens is three days. So let's see how it goes this year. Myra, thank you so much for talking with us during this week. Uh, we do appreciate You are most welcome. It's my pleasure. That's Myra Fernandez of VOA's Portuguese Service in Luanda, covering Wednesday's elections.
Tigrayan forces say Ethiopia's federal allies have launched an offensive against their southern position in violation of a month-long ceasefire. But Ethiopia's government blamed Tigrayan rebels for the flare-up in violence. Officials told VOA Tuesday they are ready for peace talks mediated by the African Union. Henry Wilkins has more from Gambela, Ethiopia. The Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, known as the TPLF, said Wednesday that troops from the National Defense Force and Amhara Regional Forces attacked its positions near Kobo in the Amhara region of Ethiopia. The report was later confirmed by the Reuters news agency. A statement from the TPLF command said Tigray's army is reliably ready to repulse this offensive and transition into a counter-offensive to liberate occupied sovereign Tigrayan territory and return our displaced people to their homes. The statement appeared to suggest the TPLF could respond with force. The Ethiopian government has since alleged that it was the TPLF which launched the attacks. A statement from the federal government called on the international community for support. The international community should also condemn the obvious belligerence of the TPLF, lest it become complicit in the unconscionable march of the TPLF to a third round of conflict. All those who profess to be committed to the stability of the region and humanitarian ideals should exert pressure on the TPLF to renounce violence and endorse peace, the statement said. The Ethiopian government says it has been laying the groundwork for peace talks with the TPLF mediated by the African Union. On Tuesday, an Ethiopian government spokesperson, Salamowit Kassa, spoke to VOA. The federal government has full confidence uh, on the African Union and its high commission assigned to accommodate uh, the peace talks. Um, there is no plausible reason for Ethiopia to look for other entities to broker the peace efforts. The TPLF, however, claims the AU is biased in favour of the federal government and will not come to the negotiating table without mediation by the Kenyan government and a resumption of basic services to the region, such as banking and humanitarian access, which have been blocked by officials in Addis Ababa. Getachu Raider, a TPLF spokesperson, criticised the government for favouring AU mediation on Monday in an op-ed published on the website of The Africa Report, a monthly news magazine. Ahmed Soliman is with UK-based research group Chatham House. It's been very evident that both sides have been recuperating and preparing themselves for a renewed bout of fighting at the same time as talking uh, about peace. Um, and as we see today, uh, as happened at the beginning of the war in November 2020, both sides have blamed the other for instigating the conflict. Um, I mean, really this relapse into fighting in, in, in Tigray and northern Ethiopia should have been avoided at all costs. William Davison is an analyst for the International Crisis Group, a research organisation based in Belgium. He says all sides to the conflict need to talk with each other. So this is a you know, clear indicator that delay in talks um, has um, you know, fed into this very volatile truce and, and we see um, events that could mean a resumption of conflict um, and I think there's there's a there's an evident um, an urgent need for the external actors here the African Union Kenya's government the US etc um, to try and get the parties not just to pause these latest hostilities but also to actually sit around the table for talks where they can discuss all of their disagreements rather than 
um, making them preconditions for talks. A humanitarian truce that was established in March between the two sides now appears to be at an end. Renewed fighting is likely to have a major impact on the humanitarian situation in Tigray. Humanitarian organisations say parts of the region could already be in a state of famine. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez said Wednesday he is shocked and saddened by the renewed fighting and that Ethiopians have suffered enough. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Gambella, Ethiopia. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butte in Washington. Today is Thursday, August 25th. The government of Malawi has ordered refugees who are staying outside of their designated areas to return to a refugee camp within 90 days. The move comes after a high court judge vacated an injunction that restrained the government from returning refugees and asylum seekers to the camp. However, the UN Refugee Agency says the move would create serious resource problems at the country's only camp. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. The government says about 2,000 refugees who are living among the communities outside the Zalika refugee camp pose a danger to national security. It also says by living outside their designated areas, they are violating the country's encampment policy, which prohibits refugees from working or doing business outside the camp. Rehem Amiro is durable solutions officer at the United Nations High Commission for the Refugees in Malawi. She told VOA that the directive to have the refugees return to camp is worrisome. Um, the issue is mostly because Daleka refugee camp is heavily congested and relocating the rural and urban refugees to this camp has their consequences. And this is mostly related to the access to the basic needs uh, because of the increase in population. And also uh, it makes the residents there prone to the non-communicable diseases, for example, COVID-19. And of course, the recent cholera uh, that is ongoing within uh, Malawi. Initially, Zalika was meant to accommodate 10,000 people, but Miro says the place is now a home to about 55,000 refugees and asylum seekers, mainly from Burundi, Rwanda, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Ethiopia. To address the congestion, the government has allowed the reopening of the Rwanda refugees camp to accommodate the returnees. But Miro says a lot of work needs to be done to improve the facility, which previously accommodated refugees who fled conflict in Mozambique. Um, UNHCR just wants to raise the concern that uh, the time frame given is, uh, is quite short. So UNHCR will continue to engage uh, the government to reconsider its position based on uh, the humanitarian ground to enable just adequate preparation before the relocation can be done. Jean Sendez as the Minister of Homeland Security. She told VOA that the government has no plans to extend the time frame given to the relocation exercise because the refugees were told about the need to return to the camp in April last year. So the notice that was given this time around was this extension of the same notice that was made last year. Yeah, so these people, they had one, one year, you know, and now 90 days. Rafael Ndabaga is a refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo living outside the camp. 
He says he has just moved from there this year in search of work after the World Food Programme eliminated him from a list of beneficiaries of free food rations. This decision becomes hard because now to relocate back in the camp is an issue. There's no job. There's no certainty of life. I will see myself as a dead person while I'm still breathing because I don't even have a story to tell my kids that we are going back to the camp. You know, now they are already addicted to the current situation we are living now. Ndabaga fears the directive would trigger some people to attack the refugees living in the communities. But the government wants it to apprehend anyone attacking them, saying only the police and the UN refugee agency will be responsible to oversee the relocation exercise. I am Lamek Masina for VOA News in Blanta, Malawi. Ghana says 23,495 Ghanaians tested positive for HIV between January and June this year. Dr. Stephen Ayisi Ado is the program manager of the National Sexually Transmitted Infections and HIV AIDS Control Program. He says the rate of prevalence was higher in men who had sex with other men, 18%, and among female sex workers, 4.6%. Dr. Ayisi Ado tells me that complacency and ignorance were among the most contributing factors in the high infection rates. Thank you very much. Number one, a shift of focus. Number two, complacency. And number three, we have become victims of our own progress and success. The fourth, which underlies all of these, is unfunded prevention education. In the past, let's say about a decade ago or more, when we had this pandemic, it was fresh, and in the same way that people treated COVID-19, they were, you know, anxious. People were panicking and all that. We didn't have any advances in treatment and all that. So it was more like a death sentence when you became positive for HIV. And so people took it serious because they thought that it was a threat to their survival. Behavior, advocacy, communication, and social mobilization around that time made a, a big difference compared to what we are seeing today. There was funding dedicated for prevention activities, so there was uh, sponsored adverts in the media. And so the top of the mind awareness was high. So that you mentioned back in the 1980s, if you were told that you had HIV AIDS, it was almost tantamount to a death sentence. What are the remedies for the number of people here, 23,495? What are the remedies for them this time? What has changed significantly is antiretroviral therapy, which we introduced in the 2000, around 2003. But what has also happened beyond just the introduction is that in the past, we used a criteria to initiate you on therapy. Your CD4 should have dropped to less than 250 before you start a medication. But now you have the opportunity to be treated or put on treatment the moment you are positive. So same-day initiation is going to be one of the main remedies for this group. So, Dr. Ado, what group of individuals, females, males, or others, do you think were the most affected in your study? Okay, so this is routine service data, but in our studies, and which we are repeating the men's study, the prevalence of HIV amongst men who have sex with men is 18% compared to the national prevalence in adult population, 1.7%. So it's very high. Then female sex workers is 4.6%. And it's based on the behavior because these are, they are multiple partners. 
Now, we know that because of these two groups, their partners are at risk, those who are bisexuals, and their non-paying partners of the female sex workers, they are at higher risk. Dr. Ayisi Ado, thank you so much again for speaking with us on Daybreak Africa. We do appreciate Thank you very much, James. And thank you for supporting us in the advocacy. Dr. Stephen Ayisi Ado is the program manager of the National Sexually Transmitted Infections and HIV AIDS Control Program of Ghana. He was speaking with me from the capital, Accra. Nigeria this week added a rotavirus vaccine to its national program that is expected to prevent 50,000 deaths of children per year from diarrhea disease. But the launch comes amid shortages of the vaccine in countries such as Cameroon, Kenya, Senegal and Tanzania. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The launch Monday coincided with the commemoration of Africa Vaccination Week. Officials from the World Health Organization, the United Nations Children's Agency, as well as Nigeria's Health Ministry attended the launch in the capital. During the event, many young children received the vaccine for free, while authorities urged citizens to embrace the measure. Faisal Shribe is the executive director of the National Primary Healthcare Development Agency, NPHCDA. They'll get the opportunity of taking it when they are taking other vaccines. We need to seize this opportunity, uh, mothers, caregivers, so that our children will be protected from this virus. Rotavirus is the most common cause of diarrhea disease in children under five years old. WHO says that globally, up to 200,000 children die each year from the disease. Authorities say the oral vaccine could prevent up to a third of severe diarrhea cases in Nigeria. WHO country representative Walter Kazadi Malumbo also attended the lunch. The rotavirus vaccine provides the opportunity to reduce the number of children dying every day from diarrhea disease caused by rotavirus. But this month, pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline said manufacturing challenges had led to a shortfall of 4 million doses of the rotavirus this year, as well as delays in delivery. According to Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the company already said it would reduce deliveries of the rotavirus vaccine by 10 million a year between 2022 and 2028. Moses Njoko, a research fellow at Nigeria's National Institute for Pharmaceutical Research and Development, says a shortfall should not be a challenge to Nigeria. The issue of them pulling out uh, shouldn't be a threat to a country like Nigeria if we actually use our internal potential. Nigeria is beginning to see the need to start indigenous efforts to start research and production, development of vaccines, as well as production of known vaccines. Njoku also says authorities must take delivery of the rotavirus vaccines in batches to avoid waste. If care is not taken, it will not be important at the right time, maybe at the start of three months or six months, why would they ship to you? So eventually you won't even use up to 10,000 dollars and you have paid the money. The supply chain management system is also very poor. For now, authorities will be trying to get as many children vaccinated as possible. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. 
And that's it for this Thursday, August 25th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can catch our TV programs, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I'm James Barton, Washington, saying... Have a great day, and please be safe whatever you do. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. In the run-up to the U.S. midterm elections, a view from western Pennsylvania. I speak to a leading Democrat and Republican to gauge the political temperature in this key battleground state where analysts say the balance of power in the Senate could be decided. Trump-backed celebrity doctor Republican Mehmet Oz faces Democrat John Fetterman. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America.